you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, camp's an amazing time where, where students experience freedom. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know why God chooses summer camps and winter camps to do that. Like, like it happens during the, during the year as well, on Wednesday nights, on Sundays, of course. But every year, you know, kids go to summer camp, they experience Jesus, and they come back on fire for God. And I don't know why he ends up doing that at summer camp, why he chooses that. I think it has to do with faith and expectation and God being able to do whatever he wants. But he has chosen that vehicle of summer camps to really uh, influence and, and, and influence kids' lives to, for, for the good. And so I don't know exactly why that is, uh, but, but we see this every year. Kids come back from summer camp with passion for Jesus. And so today we're going to start with this question for you is, how is your passion for the things of God? Now, we don't have summer camps for adults uh, which, you know, it's kind of a bummer. We do have men's camps and women's camps, and those, those are all things, conferences that we can go to as adults, but you don't get the luxury of leaving your kids and your family for a week, Monday through Friday, and going up to a summer camp where you hang out with a bunch of adults and jump around and play games that would probably get you hurt. By the way, <laughs> Rhett, seriously, I've seen some injuries at the camp, but not this year. This year was actually better than some years, uh, but Rhett, talk about injuries, there was a Zorball, I don't know if you know what a Zorball is, those giant blow up balls that you get in and then you begin to run full force at somebody who also is in one of those balls and then you collide with them there was no injuries this year there was a couple years ago but Rhett first year at camp with us as a youth leader he won the whole entire Zorball game so yeah yeah so good job Rhett but we don't have that luxury and so I, my question with your passion is because of that, right, Sundays and men's groups and women's groups and Bible studies are all important to this Christian walk. But my question is, are you still passionate for the things of God? Are you still being renewed in that great passion that you once had in your life? Or have things began to fade in your life? And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, right, I experienced it seven, eight years ago. I came to faith in Christ, and I was on fire for him, right? I turned down scholarships to go to other colleges, and I said, you know what, I've never, for, I've never once done what God wanted me to do. And so I do this church internship where people are like, you're crazy. Why are you doing an internship when you could be getting a college education? And, you know, I experienced all these things because I was passionate for the things of God. I used to go downtown Coeur d'Alene when we lived there with my friends on, on Friday nights, on Saturday nights, and we would just go from bar to bar to bar, and we would just talk to people about Jesus. And I don't mean like the mean guy on the street corner, but we would, we would have conversations. And sometimes these conversations bore fruit right there, and our hope is that they were seeds planted for future reaping as well. But I was passionate for Jesus. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, what happens? It starts to fade a little bit, right? At times, we experience struggles and, and things that maybe, maybe it's not the normal thing where we can get to summer camp every year and, you know, start, life starts to get real, right? It, it was all easy when I didn't have a wife and I didn't have kids. But as soon as you get busy, Jesus sometimes takes a back seat in our lives. So I believe there are people here today that once were passionate and zealous for the things of God. And I, I know that those, even those people, they still love Jesus, Right? But the Bible's pretty clear in Revelation, it says that the, the church in Ephesus, that God beckons them to return to their first love. He says, you do all kinds of good things. Like, there's almost nothing that I can say bad about you, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Return. So my question is, is yeah, I'm talking to a room full of mostly Christians in here, I'm sure, but are you still passionate and zealous and being renewed inwardly day by day like the Bible says? Paul said, outwardly we are decaying, but inwardly, what? We are being renewed day by day. Be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And am I the only one that doesn't have this experience every day? That every day, man, I, I do not experience a renewing of my mind. I do not experience at times this day by day renewing. 
I think there are people in this room that have frustrations, unmet expectations in their walk that has led them to have this fading experience with Jesus. I think bad circumstances have made them lost that zeal. I believe truly that you still have a love for Jesus, but it's faded. And even people in this room, not just faded, not just being renewed, but I think there are people in this room who are even jaded, right? Anyone ever had a Christian do something wrong to you? Every human's hand should go up, right? Because we're flawed. And the Bible says that we should forgive our brother in those times, but who knows that that's not always easy to do. And then what happens? We take this, this anger and we put it inward and we just continue on with our day. And that anger that we, sub, we, we just press down, what happens? It turns into jadedness towards the church. I know Christians who genuinely are Christians that do not go to Sunday gatherings. They don't go to corporate gatherings. I think that's absurd, right? They're like, oh, no, I love Jesus, but I hate his bride. It's like, what? If you told me that about my wife, I'd probably punch you in the face. <laughs> I, I love you, but I hate your wife. <laughs> And then I'd be like, would you forgive me? (laughs) But it's a real thing. Because we experience turmoil in this life. Persecution, right? Tribulation. Not only persecution, but sometimes it's just going through life. It wears down on us. And I think today God wants some of us in this room, including myself, to return to our first love. I believe he's beckoning us to return to him today so we can experience that zeal again. If you're living a boring Christian life, we're doing something wrong. Because I can tell you that life with Jesus, now at times it does seem boring, but that's because of us, right? That's because something in our life is not going right. Life with Jesus is not boring. It is not boring. And so if these are signs, these are signs, right? Are you faded? Do you have faded zeal? Are you jaded? Are you experiencing your life the boring, mundane Christian life? These are all signs that we need to be renewed. And so we're going to be in 1 Chronicles 13, 15, and 16. And yeah, we're going to read two whole chapters and just a piece of the next chapter in verse 16. But they're kind of small. So grab your Bibles. Turn with me. If you don't, it's going to be on the Sky Bible behind me. But before we, as you're turning there, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1 is where we're going to start. And as we're jumping, jumping into this text, we're, we're not going through John, right? We haven't been here before, at least since I've been here. And so I'm going to give you a little context, but we don't have a lot of time. And long story short, where we're picking up is King David has just become king of all Israel. God has put him in power after Saul, and he's done some miraculous things. One of the things that we see even in that chapter right before chapter 13 is that all people in Israel have accepted him as king. Like they have all agreed that, man, David's the guy. You want to talk about a miracle, unity. Man, when has that ever happened? Ever. And so he's been accepted as king by all of Israel, and in this text, we're picking up is he wants to return. Saul had lost the Ark of the Covenant. If you know what the Ark of the Covenant is, very briefly, it's, it's like the most holy thing uh, in all of Israel. It was the place, right? There was a tabernacle at this time when, when Moses, uh, uh, they left Egypt. They, they made this tabernacle, and, and God had his, Doug has spoken on this a little bit. They made this tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle, the most holy place, they would do this thing called Yom Kippur, which is Day of Atonement. And they would bring in a blood sacrifice into the holies of holies. So inside this, this yard, there's a tent. Inside that tent, there's an inner tent called the holies of holies. And behind this veil sat the Ark of the Covenant, this big old box-looking thing with angel wings made of gold, uh, the, the cherubim over top it with poles sticking out so people could carry it. And it was the most holy thing because what it represented, and not just represented, what it literally was, was the presence of God. And so once a year, these, these priests would, would purify themselves and cleanse themselves and do rituals and go in and pour the sacrificed lamb's blood onto the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the most holy thing in all of Israel, the most holy day in all of Israel. Not that the other feasts weren't important. And so this was the most important thing in all of Israel. And everybody knew this. And so in this text, Saul had brought the, the Ark of the Covenant out against the battle against the Philistines because he was using it as like a, a lucky rabbit's foot. And because of that, God made sure that Saul lost that battle. The Philistines take this Ark um, and they put it in their temple with their false god. 
and that's a story for another time, but that, anyway, things started to go awry with the Philistines, and so they quickly threw it on a cart, slapped the butt of the ox, and sent it back to Israel. And here it stays, and so David has just taken over his kingship, and now he is uh, wanting to return the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle. So everyone got that? It's kind of a lot, but here we go. It says this in the text, if you follow along with me. It says this, then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send every, everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it all the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. The people. So David assembled all Israel together from the Shehor, I'm not really sure how to pronounce that, of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Balah, that is to Kiriath Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called, they carry the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Jumping over, we're skipping a chapter. Uh, it's an important chapter where David starts to follow the voice of the Lord and not just people. But we're going to skip over and come back to it. We're in chapter 15 now. It says this, Now David built homes for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. This is important. Tune in for this last chapter. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of God to its place, which he had prepared for it. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the, and the Levites of the sons of Kohath, Urel, the chief, 120 of his relatives, of the sons of Merari, Asiah, the chief, and 220 of his relatives, the sons of Gershom, Joel, the chief, and 130 of his relatives, of the sons of of Elizaphan, Shemaiah the chief, and 200 of his relatives, of the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief, and 80 of his relatives, of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab the chief, and 112 of his relatives. Then David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. Why no Toms or like Bill? Why is it going to be so confusing, right? <laughs> And said to them, you are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourself for both, uh, both you and your relatives that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord God made an outburst on us. For we did not seek him according to his ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. It's a beautiful picture of worship. So the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, and from his relatives, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and from the sons of Merari, the relatives, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and with them, the relatives of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben, Jaziel, Shemiramoth, 
Jehel, Uni, Eliah, Benaiah, Masiah, Mattathiah, Elisaluhu, <laughs> Mikniah, Obed-Edom, and Jeel, the gatekeeper. So the singers, Heman, Asaph, Ethan, were appointed to sound, uh, allowed symbols of bronze, and Zechariah, Aziel, Shimmermoth, Jehel, Uni, Eliab, Masiah, and Benaiah, with harps tuned to Alamoa. I don't know what that is. And Mathiah, Elifuluhu, Mikniah, Obed-Edom, Jeliel, Jael, Azaziah, to lead with lyres tuned to the Shimoneth. Chenaniah, chief of the Levites, was in charge of the singing. He gave instruction in singing because he was skillful. Zerachiah and Elkanah were gatekeepers of the ark. Shebaniah, Joshaphat, Nathaniel, Amasai, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Eleazar, the priests, blew the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah also were gatekeepers for the ark. So it was David with the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands who went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. Because God was helping the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. They sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Now David was clothed with robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark. And the singers of Chaniah, the leader uh, of the singing with the singers. David also wore an ephod of lemon. Thus all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud-sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres. It happened when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. The last part in 16 just says this. I'm going to sum it up. That after that, David puts the ark in its place, and then he basically tells certain Levites that for forever, it didn't last forever, but forever, you are going to continually sing before the ark. Talk about a need for worship pastors and leaders. I love that. He celebrated before the Lord with all his heart with dancing. Worship can look different. Amen. Worship doesn't have to just look like standing there or the, or the old, what do I call it, the refrigerator, hands lifted. I believe I can fly, you know. It can look different, right? So would you guys pray with me as we dig into this text? Father, we just thank you for this text. God, we thank you for the Bible. I know that was a lot of reading. That was more chapters than most people here have read in a week. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, as we dig into this word, Lord, would you reveal things to us? God, would you encourage us in our walks again? God, I pray that these dry areas, Lord, that fill our life, God, would, would be abundantly quenched, God, Lord, that you would, you would refresh and you would restore and you would bring water to dry places today. God, I pray that you would be glorified through your word, God. I pray that you would be glorified through your saints today and that we would leave encouraged and built up in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title for today is Dare to Live again. Dare to live again. I uh, quoted a great movie last time I preached. It was uh, uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson. <sighs> Gets me every time. Sad movie, but good movie. Now I'm going to quote a different one that I also really like. It's called uh, uh, The Dead Poet Society. Who's seen The Dead Poet Society? I don't think there's any inappropriate parts in that, but students maybe don't watch it. I don't really remember. But I want to quote a couple of things. I'm not a poetry guy, believe it or not. But there is some poetry in that. I want to quote some of these things today that talk about life. There's a couple of quotes that really grabbed my attention in that movie. One of them is this. It says, seize the day. And this is actually an old hymn as well. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. Now, how encouraging is that? Gather ye rosebuds while you may. All right, that's it today. <laughs> Walt Whitman is also quoted, O me, O life, of the questions of these reoccurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, amid these, O me, O life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, and that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. That the powerful play goes on and that you may contribute a verse. My question for you is what will your verse be? 
The last one is, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discovered that I have not truly lived. Henry David Thoreau. I believe God today wants to take our dry bones in this room. And I might not be talking to everyone. I think there are people in here that have deep wells with God, that they really do walk with God in deep places, and there's a constant renewing. But if you're a normal Christian in America, I would say the majority, including myself, don't always walk in that renewal. And so I believe that today God wants to take our dry bones, our early disillusionment, the thing that caused us to be jaded or, or saddened or Man, maybe this life isn't what it's all cracked up to be. And I believe he wants to bring water to those areas. I think he wants to water the areas in people's lives and to get us to awaken. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ's light will shine on you. I believe there are people in this place specifically that have attempted good things in their walk, just like David did, Right, Carrying up the ark in chapter 13 in 1 Chronicles was a good thing. It properly belonged in the tabernacle. David knew, knew this. David knew that it sitting in a field was not a good thing. So what David did was ultimately a good thing, Right, his attempt to bring up the ark of God. And I think there are people who have attempted good things in their Christian walk, whether it may be talking to people about Jesus, man, man trying to, to do everything they can to glorify God in their walk. And I think that at times they've experienced what, I don't know exactly what, but, but hindrance in that thing. And that has given them this idea of disillusionment. And man, this Christian walk is, it's tough. Who's ever thought that, that this Christian walk is tougher than what you originally thought when you came to faith, right? I came to faith and I'm like, God's saving everyone in my family. Man, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to always be on fire in the same way I am today. And then fast forward, there's people in my family that are saved now, praise God. But not everyone in my family saved. He did not do the thing in the way that I thought he was going to do it. And sometimes that can bring disillusionment to us. It can discourage us. And so I quoted, what will your verse be? Will you contribute to a godly legacy or a jaded frustration? Will you add to his kingdom or surrender in frustration and complacency? Complacency is one of the worst places we can be as Christians. We're called to be content but not complacent. One, contentment still cares. Complacency does not. Will you step forward or will you shrink back? So let's dig into the text and learn the way back to passion. I'll also be digging into some of the things in this text that, well, we're going to look at why David was wrong in the first chapter. Because some of you might have thought, like, why the heck did it not work the first time, but it worked the second? And so we're going to be talking about things and only in hopes that we may not fall into the same error as David. And so we're going to start there, and then we're going to give some positives, because we're not just going to dwell on what David did wrong. Amen? And so point number one, the thing that I see overall in this text more than anything, if you read chapter 13 and chapter 15, man, the only thing that I continue to come back to, at least over other things, I see multiple things, but the big thing I see, number one, if you're taking notes, is that God is holy. God is holy. This means that he is set apart. If you know what that word means, it means set apart. It means different. It means holy other. God is effable and yet ultimately ineffable, unable to be described in words, right? You can say some stuff about God that, yeah, that makes sense, that describes him, but did you know that ultimately God, words fall short in some way, amen? Like our words fall short in ultimately describing the God of all creation. If our words did not fall short, he would not be a God worth worshiping. He is wholly other, he's different. This entails that he is also sinless. He is holy. Now, when I see this text, when I see him strike down Uzzah, or Uzziah, I can't remember his name, right? I see a God that's holy, that, that sin cannot come into God's presence in that way, right? That he has set up a standard saying that this thing will not happen. No one will touch the ark. And so I see a God that is separate and holy, number one in this text. Point number two is I see that God is holy. Put up two. There it is. Yeah, I know it's the same thing, right? I really want us to drive home this point. Now, if there's two things, now there's tons of things you should know about God. <laughs> but I think the number one attribute of God, there's two attributes of God that I think are before all else. And number one is that God is holy. 
The Bible's continually describe him in Ezekiel, Revelation, holy, holy, holy. Like that's what they're singing in heaven, right? That holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And the other thing is he's worthy, 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 right? His attributes of holiness and his worthiness to receive praise are, I think, the two most important attributes about God. So I want you to understand that our God is a holy God. That when you get in his presence, there should be an awe about it. You know what I mean? Like awe, it's awe-inspiring. It's not awesome in, this, in the way that we say everything's awesome. Man, he is holy other, and it inspires awe within the depths of who we are, amen? Like God is holy. Martin Luther, if you guys knew who that is, um, when he was about to do his first uh, sacrament, right, his, his first communion where he was going to give out the bread and the, the, uh, the wine uh, for Jesus, he was so worried. He was so wrapped up in how holy God was that he thought legitimately that God might strike him dead on the spot. And I think he had the wrong idea, right? But this was before he actually came to Christ. This is before he was renewed. But I think that we have lost this reverence and this fear and this understanding about the holiness of God in a lot of American Christianity, right? He's our buddy, right? We say things like, oh, man, he's just such a good, he's just a nice guy. He's a tame shepherd. And we forget that we serve a holy, perfect God. I don't think you should worry that God's going to strike you dead. Because we have, the veil has been torn. We sung about it today. Right? The Bible assures us that we have access through the veil into his court. Right? But I do think that we have to understand that our God is a holy God. And that should bring, that should do something in you as a Christian. So again, our God is holy, number one and two. Next thing I think of where they went wrong, and we'll talk about this in the text, is number three, I think that good intentions don't mean much if it's done in the wrong way, right? In this first text, we're going to talk about it, but they, they did three things that I could see that were obviously against the obvious command of God. They had these good intentions of taking this ark, the holy presence of God, and moving it to its proper place, and yet they did it in the complete wrong way. And you're like, I didn't see that in the text. Well, we're going to dig in and show you. But one, they used people who were not Levitical priests to move the ark. That was like the hugest no-no that everybody knew, right? We're not too far removed into the bad kings yet. Everybody still knew about the holiness of the ark. David himself, the Bible tells us, by the way, back then the Bible was, was five books. The, the Pen well, it was the, wasn't the Pentateuch yet. It was the, uh, the Torah, uh, Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so it was smaller Right? We have a lot bigger Bible today, but back then David had to read the Bible to become king. Like that was something that he had to do in order to step in as king. And we know David knew the Bible because in different verses he actually quotes some very specific Bible passages about how much someone would owe if they took a sheep. And all these things that like, man, David must have known the word of God. You bet he did. And the priest then knew the word of God. And so there's three things that they did wrong. Number one is that they had people who were not Levites move the Ark of the Covenant. The next thing they did is that there was a very specific command to carry the Ark on these giant poles that were made for carrying. And yet, what did they do? It says that they put it on a new cart and drove it with oxen. The next thing that they did, I have to go back to my notes because I can't remember. Well, we're going to keep going because I'm going to hit it, but we're going to read these texts, right? So these are decrees in the Bible. First Chronicles 13, 6 to 8, if you want to put that up. It says this, and David and all Israel went up to Balah to carry out Jerem, which belonged to Judah, to bring up the ark of, the, of, of God, the Lord, who dwells beneath the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah, and Ohio drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on string instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. They had a clear, 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 clear command in the Bible that they were not to move the ark in any other way besides the poles. And I know that sounds meaningless to us, but back then, man, that was God's command. So when we do things that are outside God's command, right, why would we expect to walk in blessing? That goes for all of us, right? I'm not saying God doesn't love you and you're not forgiven because you are, right? He, he, when he died for you, he forgave you of your past sins, your present sins, and all future sin. But if we continually deny the clear command of God, why would we walk in blessing? Why would we think that we're going to, don't get me wrong, God still does amazing things. 
I've experienced it where, I, where I'm walking and saying I haven't repented of something, and God still shows his goodness to me. But I think at times, sometimes, maybe, maybe you might not experience this continual renewing, renewing because you're harboring something in your heart that you have not given to God. You are walking in clear disobedience, and everybody here knew this. I don't see a story in this where, man, that poor Uzzah, man, that poor Uzzah, oh, man, it's just bad circumstances, a story of something gone awry. I think this is more of a story of activist disobedience to the command of God. Exodus 25, 12 says this, you shall also cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. Two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be removed from it. The Bible clearly explains that they're supposed to move this ark only through the poles. And specifically, the only people that can move the ark are consecrated priests. Here's my last point that I can remember. Uh, Numbers 4.15, it says, When Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them by the poles so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. Oh, yeah, the last one's the obvious one. He touched the ark, right? That was the one I forgot. Right? It has to be Levites of the line of Aaron, these priests that are only to move the holy objects. Second thing is that they moved it in a totally dishonoring way to God. They put it on a cart and just let oxen run with it. And the second thing is Uzzah thought that he was a good idea. The one thing that we're command, they were commanded never to touch they're not supposed to touch any, any objects that are, that are part of the holy objects in the tabernacle if you're not a priest. And specifically, not even the priests themselves were supposed to touch the ark. And Uzzah throws out his hand to stop the ark from falling. And so we get back to this idea that even things done with good intentions, if they're not properly done, can still be wrong. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that it's not better, because, right, good intentions do mean a lot, but if they're done in an improper way, it's wrong. I can tell you time and time again where I did something that I probably should not have done when I witnessed to people the way I went about certain things early in my Christian walk that were absolutely probably not wisdom. It was probably the wrong method of doing it, yet I really did have good intentions of doing it. I'm not going to share those because some of them were pretty, pretty whacked out, you know? <laughs> You'd be like, dude... But I, but I had good intentions in doing it, and maybe it's not as bad as having bad intentions, but ultimately, God wants us to do things both with good intentions and in the proper way. And what I mean by proper way is in accordance with his word. If you are living life right now that is not in accordance with God, God's word, and you're wondering why you're feeling jaded and burnt out and not renewed, man, I would say that the first thing you're called to do is obey the word of God. And I don't mean out of legalism in order to gain approval. I mean because the Bible tells me that if I love Jesus, I will obey his commandments. The Bible says not only that, but by this my father is glorified, that you go and bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You bearing fruit is a natural thing from a changed heart, but we do it we have to do it as people who have been changed, so by proving that we're his disciples. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about earning grace because it's unearnable. I'm talking about following Jesus' words because he calls us to do it. I'm going to be married whether I obey my wife or not, but my life is going to go way more smooth if I obey her. <laughs> Amen. Amen, babe? Yeah. No joke. I've tried to step out of bounds. No, I'm just kidding. She doesn't hit me. Actually, she has punched me once or twice, but we went in the arm. Probably deserved it. Um, anyway, so what I'm calling us to, right, is to do things both with good intentions and in proper order. And I'm not talking about rigidity. I'm not talking about religious heart behind things. I'm talking about, man, if this guy is really your Lord and Savior, and if you're really experiencing this time in your life where you're not being renewed, you're jaded, like we said, you're disillusioned, then maybe, maybe the way you're going about things is good intentions, but it's not in the proper way that Jesus would have you do it. Amen? I think Jesus clearly commands us to do things in the Bible the way for a reason. It's for your own good and the good of other people. So that's number three. 
Number four is this. What else do I see? I see God is rightly, right? We're still on this path of, I don't think this is negative, but we're, we're seeing what they're doing wrong in 13, and then we're going to go into 15, and we're going to apply some of these things to us, and hopefully that God will give us passion again. Number four is this. What do I see? I see God is rightly to be feared and revered. And I chose those words very clearly because they're different. You might say, but perfect love casts out fear. Yeah, and our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells us. Luke says, do not fear the one who harms the body, but the fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I'm not saying that we should fear hell, or, or uh, that says we should, but I think that's before Christ. But the Bible tells us that we're not only to revere God, because throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's two different words used. One is reverence, and one is fear of the Lord. I think that you should have a genuine, real reverence, and also a genuinely real fear of the Lord. If you don't know what I'm talking about, raise your hand if you've ever been to court. No, I'm not saying, like, tell me about what you did at court. I once protested a parking ticket. Have you ever seen a judge? Right? Up on their, like, throne or whatever you want to call that. Do you want to know that that really did provoke in me not just a sense of reverence, but a real sense of fear? Like, you, and maybe we're splitting hairs here, hairs here but they're, they're very different. They are different in some way. Like, reverence is respect, and yeah, they're like, oh, God, you know. But fear is like, there's a little bit of trembling in you. And I'm telling you what, when I stood before a judge, and I spoke, and he told me, don't speak, and I'm like, oh, it was not just a holy reverence. There was a holy fear there. And if this judge, who's good and is a right position, if this is an earthly judge, how much greater would the judge of all the earth be? You guys know what I'm saying? And I'm not just telling you this because we should fear God and be true. No, I really do believe that perfect love casts out fear, that when we, when we die, we're, it's not going to be like we're scared of God all the time. The Bible says he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, that he's going to rejoice with us, that we're going to worship him in love, that we have perfect unity with him. But I do believe on the great white throne judgment, I will be terrified, not about me going to hell, but man, witnessing the awesome wrath of God is a serious thing. And I think if we know this, if God is right, rightly to be feared and revered, this can protect us in certain things, right? If I know that he truly hates sin, man, maybe this will stop me from doing the things that I know I shouldn't do. God is rightly to be feared, and he's rightly to be revered. In Revelation, John, when he has this experience where he's brought up and he's shown heaven, you know what happens twice when he sees Jesus? He falls over of dead, Right? And it says that this, in the context of what's going on, it says that, man, he's scared. You know that song, like, will I be able to speak at all? You know, I can only imagine. You know, I'm not going to sing because I'm really bad at singing. But yeah, that song that talks about what will, I, what, what will I do? Will I sing for you, Jesus? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Don't get me wrong. We will do those things. But I think initially I'm going to fall over as though I was dead because God is holy. Because there's a holy reverence and there's a, there's a, real, a real fear that goes into worshiping God. You should, like, John, don't you know perfect love casts out fear, buddy? <laughs> Get up. As he's like stiff as a board. <laughs> Why I mention this is because I do not believe that Uzzah had a proper reverence or fear of God. A man that knows the clear commandments, you can't tell me, man, this guy was one of David's mighty chosen people, and he touched the ark around all these priests that were there, but they were the ones not carrying the ark the proper way, you cannot tell me that he did not know these things. He did not know that God should be revered and respected and feared. And I believe that if he would have had a proper reverence and fear of God, he would have stopped himself from trying to touch the one thing that he should not touch. Do you still have a proper reverence and fear of God in your life? This is really encouraging, isn't it? Don't worry, we're going to get there. We're in chapter 13. We're about to jump into 15. Number five. Uh, we know, I want to talk about this. Uzzah reached out, touched the cart. I think that this was the height of arrogance. God's word clearly spoke against it. And at times, I think we think too highly of ourselves, and we think too lowly of God. This is the last negative point, I promise. That this is obviously to me a sin of commission. If you know what sin of commission is, it means a committed sin. Right? There are sins of commission, things that we commit, like actively commit, like stealing or whatever. And then there's sins of omission, not doing the things that we should have done. And this is clearly a sin of commission. 
And at times, I think as we're going about, don't get me wrong, you are fully forgiven in Christ. Your sins have been removed from you. But who knows here that sin still plays an effect on us. What I mean by that is there's still consequences to sin. For example, if I cheated on my wife, do you think there's going to be consequences to that action? Absolutely, it will affect me here on this earth. Do you think if I stole something, there's going to be consequences to that? Not if I don't get caught. You know what I mean? No, there are real consequences still today for sin. Now, now the weight of sin, the inequity, all those have been removed from us. But at times, sometimes the devil also lies and it makes us feel as though we're separated from God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I don't know how you don't. Because as we do things that the Bible still says are wrong, you're still forgiven. And yet, sometimes it, it brings this, this feeling of separation from us that I think it's false, that I don't think should rightfully be there. But it, nonetheless, it is there. At least we think it is. And so I see in this text a man that committed sin, and maybe in your life, as you do acts of committed sin, that you may feel this separation from God, and ultimately, maybe that's the thing that, that you've experienced in your Christian walk, that, that, man, it used to not be there, but as you sin and as you struggle through this life, you realize that, man, I feel far from God. You haven't experienced that renewing because you're so worried about your, your relationship with Jesus because you feel he's mad at you. And I think that's wrong, right? I think that that is wrong to feel. I think that God truly has forgiven you if you're in Christ. But nonetheless, as we go about this life and as we commit sin, we have this weight, it seems, on us. And I see this clearly with Uzzah. Now there's going to be some positives. What I see that's good in the text, right? I see David, perseverance, willingness to repent. Seek his voice. It's funny that in the chapter right after, in chapter 14, what does it say in chapter 13? It says that he went to all the men of Israel, called them all together, and it says that he got their counsel. That's good, right? The Bible says there's wisdom and abundance of counselors. That, that's real. Like, if you don't know what you should do or you're struggling with a decision, going to multiple people that know you is, is a very good way, the Bible says, to receive counsel. But I also believe that going and seeking God's counsel is more important. That we as Christians should both get counsel from other people, but I also think that we should get godly counsel. We should seek God in his counsel and what he would have for us. And I see in this text that David in chapter 13, he does not, it does not say that he sought God's counsel. It does not say that he sought God's counsel. He says to the people of Israel, hey, what do you guys think? Oh, it seems good. And if it's from God, we're going to do it. But he doesn't seek God's counsel when he does it. Because maybe God would have warned him. And the next chapter after he stopped trying to move the ark, he's going to all these battles, right? He's, he's fighting wars against the Philistines. But every time he goes to war, the Bible specifically says that he sought God's counsel. And God told him what to do, specifically. Like, God says for one battle, go and fight this battle. Then the second one, he says, no, 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 don't go and fight this battle. Even though David was preparing to. He says, I want you to go around. And when you hear this, this, this sound in the tree, then I want you to march down upon him. And so we serve a God that specifically calls us to specific things in specific times as a specific people. I think that we serve a specific God. Let me go to the next point. We serve the God of the specific. I don't think, I don't think that we serve a God. I've heard this a lot in Christian circles that, oh, no, like whatever you do, as long as like it's in accordance with God's will... Or I'm sorry, the word of God, if like God's word says it and you're doing it, then that's, you're in, a, in accordance with God's will. And I get what they're saying, but from Genesis to Revelation, what do we see time and time again as God works with people? Abraham, he speaks to him where to go. Even later in the New Testament, even though they have the Bible, he's continually speaking to people. I can tell you that if I was just reading the Bible and doing whatever I want, like, what I thought was good, I would have missed things. I'm telling you right now that I've had experiences where God spoke to me to do certain things. We serve a specific God that will call us to specific things in specific times. And so maybe one of the reasons why we're still in this place of not being renewed is because, man, we've stopped listening to God. We've, and I'm not talking about the word, this is good, follow this. But I'm also saying, pray, seek God's voice, seek what he's saying to you. Because I also think he will speak specifically to you. Next, last couple things I'm going to talk about. 
as we end here is number seven. I think this, what I see in this text in chapters 15 very clearly is that we need to begin in worship, we need to proceed in worship, and we need to end in worship. Chapter 13, it says that they were worshiping, but there's multiple things, let me put that up, there's multiple things in this text in chapter 15 that they do. It says that this time, man, they, and last time they also did worship with all their might, but this time they sacrificed bulls as they were going. He, he specifically commanded people to sing praises and to bash cymbals and be in worship. And what does it say about David as they're getting into the city? He's wearing like this big diaper thing, this afod vest. And it says that he worshiped with all his might before God. And then when they get it into its proper place, it says that he set up continual worshipers before God. I think one way that we experience renewal, even though we're worshiping God because he's worthy, right? I think it's weird to worship God any other reason than that. I worship because he's worthy of the, of the worship to receive. But what happens to us in worship? I think God also reaches us in worship. I think that we experience things in worship because of his goodness. And so if you're in this dry place, man, this is my command to you. I think from the word of God, number seven, that's the wrong one. But we need to begin in worship. We need to proceed in worship. And we need to end in worship. Maybe you're feeling dry because you haven't really pushed into worship. I'm not talking about like here on Sundays, man, that's great. But I mean like alone time with God. You want to know what biblical worship looks like? The Bible says this, that the word for it in Greek is, is to lie prostrate. Have you ever lied prostrate on the ground? There's also words that mean to raise hands. That word means, right? right? Worship looks different at different places, right? I'm not saying be weird. I'm not saying to wear a vest and a fod and like dance around. But I think dancing's okay. But the fod's weird. We don't need an fod anymore. <laughs> but if you want to dance, if you want to lay down, that's good. I used to lay down in my duplex. I used to lay down in the, I had like four roommates in a two-bedroom duplex. And I used to lay down in the bathroom because there was no other place. Like there's no quiet when you have roommates. So the only place I could go where no one else would go when I'm in there is the bathroom. So in the mornings, I would grab like a towel and put it on the ground because four dudes in one house is nasty. And I'd put the towel down and I would, I would get with God. I would worship God. And I'm telling you what, as I worship God, even though I'm doing it for him because he's worthy, man, God is good. He is always good, and he always pushes back in us. And as I'm worshiping God, he would fill me and renew me. So maybe those days pass, you're wondering, what's different? Are you getting alone with Jesus in worship? We'll have the worship team come back up as we end. I think the last thing, you guys already saw it, the last thing that we need to do is that we need to attempt again. Right? David spent three months without the ark in its proper place after the first time he tried to move it. And rightfully so. I get that there's times of like abstaining from things and I get that. It's a very real thing when we experience real. It's easy for me to say like when something goes bad in someone else's life. Like, oh dude, just pull through. Like, get back on the horse and try again. It's very hard to actually do that. So I get that there's times and seasons of maybe stepping back. David stepped back for three months and experience God in other ways where he sought, sought his counsel, and I get that, but here's the thing. I think ultimately when you come to this place of, okay, I've learned from my past. I'm, I'm, I'm experienced dryness. I, I'm, I'm going to attempt to seek him again. I think today we need to attempt again. Do you remember when you used to talk to others about Jesus at your workplace, your family? Do you remember when you used to feed on God's word? Not just read God's word, like, intellectually, but, man, when God's word used to speak to you? Do you remember when you used to serve others selflessly with no agenda? Do you remember when your prayer life was full? Do you remember when you used to walk in peace, when anxieties of this world didn't bear upon you in the way that they do now? My question is, what happened? There's a story in the Bible about a master with three servants. You guys are probably familiar with it. Uh, there's a thing, uh, money back then, at least the money that they used was a thing called talents. It was like a year's wages. And as he leaves to go on this long business trip, the master says to his servants to come to him, and, and he gives one servant one talent. And he says, hey, invest it well. I'll be back. To the next servant, he gives him like three talents, I think it was. 
And he says, invest it well, take care of it, and I'll be back to, for, to give an account for that. Last one, he gives like five talents. It says that, that, that the, the master went on his way, and, and some months or years later, he returned to, to get an account for the things that he gave his servants. And one servant came to him, and he's the one that, that had three. And he says, Master, look, uh, you gave me three talents, and, and I, I went to work, and I got three more talents from what you gave me. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You'll be rewarded with more. Next one came up and he said, Master, you gave me five talents and I've acquired five more talents. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You will be put in charge over much. And the last one came and said, Master, I know that you're a shrewd, hard, mean man. You gave me one talent. I was scared to lose it, so I buried it in the dirt. Here it is. And he says, you wicked servant. If you knew I was a shrewd man, why didn't you at least put it in the bank so it could accrue interest away from me. I think there are people here today who have been given a talent from God, talent or talents. And are we using those talents for God's glory? Are we the, the, the servant? Maybe you're in this place where you're not jaded, but you're like, man, I don't even want to like be a part. Like you come to service, great, and, and you go home, but you're like scared in a sense. Whatever it may be, you're scared of people, you're scared of community. You just want to live a quiet life, which the Bible does call us to live in some ways, but he also commands us to do other things. And I think that some people here have buried their talent in the dirt. And clearly the Bible says that, man, we're supposed to use everything we have for the kingdom. What talents do you, you can put that slide, what talents do you currently have and are you making use of them? I think God wants to bring us all out of dry religion today. The Bible commands us again in Ephesians, says, awake, O sleeper, and rise again. My question for you is today, will you push into God would you, would you seek God again? Would you attempt to push in? Maybe in times past, you're like, I've tried that. Well, I want you to try again. Wake up, O oh sleeper, and live again, the Bible says. Will you live again today?